I'm Stefan Siddig, and welcome to American Theatre Artists Online, where we talk with leading contemporary figures in American theatre. If you've been enjoying the American Theatre Artists Online podcast, I urge you to consider donating to help the artists who produce the theatre that we all love so much. The Actors Fund provides assistance to artists to cover basic living expenses, such as food, essential medications, utilities, and more. If you love and enjoy theater, please consider donating to the Actors Fund today. Just go to actorsfund.org and press donate. Look at me, darling, and you'll see my heart in pieces. But give me just a moment, cause I'm down on my knees. Six, seven, twelve. Baby, I'm begging you for second chances. The kids all miss you too, so please forgive and please don't sue me. Like three day old French fries need second chances. Give me another try and my brother isn't with you. My guest today is Ryan Duncan, who has performed on Broadway in Shrek and Getting the Band Back Together, for which he wrote additional material, with Mary Lou Henner. He has also performed in many off-Broadway productions, including Liberty, The Yellow Brick Road, Nassim, Soul Doctor, and he originated the role of Juan in the now international hit Alter Boys, for which he earned a Drama League nomination for Distinguished Performance. He has also appeared at various regional theaters, especially in the D.C. area, like Ford's Theater, Signature Theater, and Studio Theater, and he has toured nationally and performed in both film and television. Ryan works for Only Make Believe, a nonprofit that provides theatrical experiences to kids in hospitals, for which he's translated shows into Spanish as well as Mersion, one of the fastest growing American companies which fosters social skills, diversity, equity and inclusion, and empathy through online virtual reality. He is in development with the Broadway AIM shows Distant Thunder, a contemporary Native American musical by Sean Taylor Corbett, and Passing Through. Ryan also wrote the twistedly funny holiday musical A Gander Family Christmas. Hi, Ryan. Hey there, Stefan. How's it going? Good. Thank you so much for being on American Theatre Artists Online. Oh, gosh, my pleasure. I'm so happy to be here. We're happy to have you. And, you know, I've been wanting to talk to you for a while. You have a really interesting career. You've performed on Broadway in a few shows in Shrek and getting the band back together. Uh, you've written some material for that as well. And you've performed... Um, in a lot of different places, off-Broadway in a lot of uh, well-known shows and regionally in D.C., New York, and across the country. And you have just a really interesting career. Well, thanks. I, uh, <laughs> that's nice to hear. No, I feel good about it, I guess. I, I, I like I like where I where I am, and I like... I had to, Looking back, is it gives you a lot of perspective, right? And I can look back and say I'm very grateful for the things I've been able to do. But you can't always see that at the time, right? <laughs> Right, of course. I mean, you're still young, Ryan. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but you yes. Make the turn 
Five, I hear it's really exciting. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so let's start then with your experiences on Broadway, since a lot of people um, know material that's on Broadway and they, you know, it's probably reaches the most people. Um, you've been in two really different shows, I think, uh, Shrek, and then on the other hand, getting the band back together. Uh, very, very different shows. So tell us a bit about each and how you were associated, what your role was in, in these productions and what you kind of learned from each of these very different, although I'm sure amazing experiences. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, well, Shrek was my Broadway debut and we started, um, uh, we started in 2008. Now they had had a few readings and a workshop prior to that. I came aboard the summer of 2008. We did, uh, a big rehearsal process in New York city. And then we, we did an out of town at the fifth Avenue in Seattle. So that was our out of town tryouts and the show, got whittled back, what whittled down and changed to, to what it became on Broadway. And we opened December, oh my gosh, uh, our anniversary is coming up, December 14th in 2008. Mm. Wow. So I, it's funny how I got involved in that show because I have a career where, I'll, I'll admit, if I sat around waiting for, you know, the, the kind of middleman, the, the casting directors, the agents to to give me a career, I wouldn't have one. So yeah. uh, a lot of things happen by collaboration mm. and by luck, you know. And yeah. so this particular show, <clears throat> excuse me, I had done a reading. The choreographer of the show, Josh Prince, saw me in Alter Boys off Broadway mm. and brought me in to do this reading called One Way Ticket to Hell, <laughs> which was super fun. <laughs> and from there, he kept saying, you need to come in for Donkey. You need to come in for Donkey, for Shrek. And I knew he was choreographing it. And I kept thinking, nah you're going to get a famous person. It's just, it's just not going to be me. And, um, there were a couple strange balls dropped in there where I showed up to an audition and then I was the only one they couldn't see. It was very strange. So I didn't do the workshop. And then I ended up, um, going in one day, I was doing a play off Broadway actually at the mint theater, Mm -hmm. um, three hour Spanish civil war play. And, um, something like, I would, yeah, just, you know, like, by Ernest Hemingway, his only play that he oh, kind wow. of wrote as a bit of a film. And um, <laughs> we put the whole thing up. And yeah. uh, so I auditioned for, for for the donkey track and uh, for donkey. And then I, I remember wearing this gray hat because I was like, well, I'm going to be wearing some kind of costume that hides my hair and I want to look more a character animal-like if I can. <laughs> so I remember going in and a lot of the people were there, not so much... Not the writers, not Janine and David, but um, Jason Moore, the director, was there and uh, people from casting. And I did everything and I left, kind of assuming, ah, I don't think I'm going to get this. And they were very quiet. Mm. And then I had a random kind of really short nothing callback. And then I had a final callback where they were all there. And it felt like it felt so easy. Mm. All these auditions you go to that don't feel easy at all. Yeah. You're like, you think you booked something and you find it. You're like, I did the final callback and someone else has one a week later. Mm. <laughs> this was easy like supposed to be in my life so i booked as one of the three pigs and the donkey cover first donkey cover so the first covers had to learn the show when we were in seattle the second covers could kind of sit back uh but the show went through massive changes and then we came to broadway and ran about a year and um it was a lot of hard work it was the broadwayest show ever i mean it was at broadway theater on broadway dreamworks it was their first foray into stage production and so it's a lot of money spent on it um it was 
it was a lot of hard work because there were so many changes when you put on a new show you'll come in and there'll be an entire new songs and new scenes and you've just learned the ones you had before and so it was um but there was a lot of joy in it i met a lot of great friends oh it was your first it was your first time right uh, on broadway so that must have been a thrilling oh my god you know what my my first preview I'll never forget this memory. I'm in costume backstage. We're ready to do the first preview, which is like, and I think I, before I became the fairy tale creature that I was, I just crossed the stage as a guard in this like mm-hmm. guard armor. And Janine Tesori was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. She ran up, came backstage and pulled me aside and gave me a little Tiffany box. And I opened it and she said, you know, happy debut. And uh, it was a, it was a little keychain with an R on it, you know, my first initial. And she was just like, I feel like you're appreciating this experience and thank you for being here. And she took off and I, my first preview, I was a crying guard <laughs> with a Tiffany box Aww. hidden in the costume. <laughs> oh, what a nice, so, what a nice moment though. Uh, she, she's the best. It really yeah. was a great uh, creative team. And, oh. yeah, so you had, a, you had a great time on Trek. And as you said, uh, like the Broadwayist of Broadway shows, um, super Broadway. Yeah. Uh, so you had it all at once up front, uh, and you were able to have that experience. Uh, but then it's been several years uh, since then into your more latest foray on Broadway, which is getting the band back together. And I know you did a ton of stuff in between, and we're going to talk yeah, about that. Ten years, but yes, <laughs> ten years to not be on Broadway. Just ten years, but ten years back. You know, I've talked to some other actors here and there about this sort of thing, where you think, you know, you get your first Broadway show, and you think, okay, now it's just going to be a roll of different Broadway shows back, back to back, and then you realize oh no, wait, for me, it's going to be different. So um, talk to us about getting the band back together. Um, what a unique, different kind of show, especially for Broadway. Yeah, and so so in, so in that, between Shrek and getting the band back together, I while I was doing Shrek, or just as we closed, I started my first table read of getting the band back together. So wow. in that time, you're not on... Well, a lot of people, you're right. They do several Broadway shows in a row. It depends on where your focus is and what you do. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes a dancer can do five in a row, and then they yeah. you age into a different place. So in that interim, I was I did a lot of off-Broadway stuff, but also kind of development of, of stuff, which I know we'll talk about in a moment. Mm-hmm. But I did my first table read, because Ken Davenport, who produced Alter Boys, was like, hey, will you do a reading of this show that we wrote? And I was like, you wrote? He's like, he and a group of... Um, Actors, really funny actors, they, they took on the name The Grundle Shots. Hmm. Um, I think it was another kind of crazy, uh, dirty name that they were choosing between the two. And they chose Grundle Shots. <laughs> and they got these actors together to write a show based on people and things they observed in Sayreville, New Jersey. So they took a little trip, made a little documentary about to Sayreville, New Jersey, and decided to write a show about a guy who uh, gets fired from Wall Street and goes back to live in his mother's basement and gets his band back together. It's kind of like every 80s movie fantasy, as if, but if Will Ferrell did them, did the movies <laughs> wow. uh, back then. So, so wait, for those, been, for those of us that yeah, are in the DC area, uh, and maybe not as familiar with the New York area. Uh, where and what is Saraville, New Jersey? <laughs> so, well, Saraville, New Jersey is just kind of a small to medium-sized town in New Jersey of, of blue-collar folks. It's uh-huh. kind of like so. I grew up, uh, did some gro- a lot of growing up in the in Woodbridge, Virginia, mm-hmm. uh, Nova, and so it would kind of be like. Well, I know so much has grown in the DC area. So all the places that were small 
towns are small cities for so now. It's like a suburb, <laughs> a suburb area, suburban, small town area, right? Like yeah, it's almost like if someone was like, we're going to do a show in Stafford, ah, Virginia. Got it. No, or, no, no. Or, Definitely. Owens Mills or something. No, no, there. absolutely. Got it. Okay. So, so, so go ahead. Sorry. You know, blue collar town in America and, uh, and wrote a show based on a premise of, of, of a guy who thought he had a very uh, kind of short career in, in, at Wall Street. And it wasn't. He was fired by someone much younger than, than he was and mm. went back to New Jersey to live with his mom and get his band back together. And all of his friends still live in in that town. So it could be any town really, but it had a very Jersey feel. Uh, So I came aboard, I started reading these various character roles. Uh, In uh, 2013, we did, this is where it gets crazy. We did an out of town at George Street Playhouse in um, New Jersey. Mm -hmm. And at George Street, uh, I played a lot of these uh, same characters uh, that I did on Broadway, but one of them was named called Nick Styler. And this character only had a little speech in Act Two. He introduced the band. He sang a way hardly anything, and then he took off. Mm-hmm. Well, in 2014, as they were getting ready to try to get backers for Broadway, we had some big readings for the for for theater owners, the Broadway theater owners, and they wrote me as part of a song mm-hmm. called Second Chance for that character. And I was like, "What?" <laughs> the composer said, "Yeah, uh, we have this song. We're not sure what to how to finish it." So I said, "Can I take it home?" I asked him. And he uh, it was Mark Allen who wrote the music and Doug Gonzalez was orchestrating it. And they said, yeah, you can take it home. Mm. So I took it home. I wrote the end of it, including a huge breakdown in, a, in the song. And I came back in and I said, well, here's how this could go. I'm going to basically, mm. you know that Muppet that smashes his face on the keyboard and says, I'll never get it right. Yes, or yes, whatever. Yes. <laughs> I said, I'm going to smash my face on the keyboard after I go through this monologue the second time. And after that, you can pull out the music and then I'll recover. So it kind of, we kind of mapped it out. And it became this kind of really huge, funny number. And the theater owners were like, that has to be in the show. Wow. And then I did it on Broadway a few oh, years ago. Okay, so, so that's that's got to feel cool. First of all, that you took the risk. and You're like, hey, I'll do, let me try something. And the fact that then they said, sure, go ahead. Uh, Stephen Sondheim would be proud of that moment uh, and happy. You know, that's <laughs> speaking of the... the they late- probably say... I could write that better. <laughs> right, of course he could. But he would also be happy that that sort of creativity was allowed, that that sort of flow of sort of like, well, let me give a shot, let me try it. Um, and that then it was successful and, you know, they kept it. Um, what a proud well, moment for you. You're right on because John Rando, thank you, because John Rando and Ken Davenport and Mark Allen, they were all kind of like, Chris Bailey, they were like, yeah, let's try this out. So we could all, during the process, like some of the lines I spoke as I played a drama teacher, I made up, some of those lines sometimes in previews, I think, mm-hmm. a monologue, a little monologue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, you, but they wanted the show to be, it was really collaborative in that sense. You could try stuff out. Mm-hmm. You know, we even had days where we'd pretend audition and those things sometimes ended up in the show. Oh, wow. So but really it was a very creative process for you. Yeah, absolutely. So it was so much. That's got to feel different, right? So I just want to say these shows are too. So you know, Shrek is such a machine. It's such a you know, and, and there's nothing wrong with that either. Um, but it's like you know, you're kind of got you're a cog in a bigger wheel. You have to do your part, get it done, be in the right place at the right time, learn your lines, learn you know. And then for this one, it sounds like you had a little. You obviously had more input, and it was much more of a, a fuller creative process for you. Maybe a better creative process for you at this point in time in, in a later part of your life. Yeah, that's what I like to do. And you're right. A lot of shows, well, particularly big shows, DreamWorks, Disney, things like that, yeah. they're gonna they're gonna have a 
a process that there's only you do fit into a bit of a machine Mm -hmm. but there are other shows where you know when you workshop shows there are new contracts now to 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 protect actors or to take care of actors who are adding material to shows Mm -hmm. and saying hey this moment was because i made it up in a rehearsal or this moment happened in a preview and we'd like you know the impetus is normally to make the show better Right. Uh, a lot of other factors are involved, money and who gets paid and how right. you're credited. It's when the show so is like super successful, then that's when you, like, I know there's still some people who were in the original chorus line that are upset that they don't have some of the, you know, they didn't get any of the money. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That happens. <laughs> that does happen. That happens. So really use your idea or your story. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, creativity is weird that way when you're in a room with people and you're creating, um, you know, the best, the best idea wins. But not necessarily the person who created the idea, always, right? So it's yeah. But so you had a great experience, though, and for you, um, you really were able to create um, and put together uh, and really flesh out this role for you. Yeah, I, I played um, a few different roles. One of them was a silent role <laughs> in getting the band back together. He was part of the Bad Guys band called Mouthfeel, and I, I feel like I needed to. I always, you know. Because of my, my background and the things I do, and background being like life background and ethic background, I always feel like, and I say to young people, you don't play a people, you play a person. You find an individual and you embody that character and, and inhabit that character with with their impulses and what they would do, and then you add things on to to make them as realistic as possible. Mm. So in, in getting the band back together, even it was, you know, uh, you know, slap down funny comedy we i feel like we all kind of came from a real place with who these people were so that you hope that audience members can see themselves in the character mm-hmm. um not a caricature not a stereotype you can play with an archetype I, right. I, i'd say that so i wanted to make these i have names for them i had um i all three character main characters i played would have would would post on instagram uh uh mm-hmm. in their way and so um yeah, that's. I love doing that. I love that kind of part of the creative process. Yeah, no, I mean, it's really interesting that you were able to do that. And, you know, you mentioned briefly in, in while you were describing some sort of the process for this show, your your background and your ethnic background and that, you know, you play a person, not a people. I thought that's really interesting. Let's talk a bit about your background because you have uh, one of those backgrounds that is really diverse in a lot of different ways and maybe perhaps not in expected ways. People can't really put you in a box. I have a friend who calls herself ethnically ambiguous. Uh, that's her casting mantra. She says, I walk in. I always in. said that I was ambiguously ethnic and then recently I've heard like, oh, you can't say that. I'm like, well, I'm not insulting myself. I'm no, saying you true. can't pinpoint yeah. one background per se yeah. based on my, how I present, right? Right. And so let's talk a bit about that because, you know, I know even when you and I worked together, I was sitting there questioning, going, what is he, you know, because like you, I also am ethnically ambiguous, but mine doesn't show as much. I, if I want to hide it, I can. But for you, what, what was some of your experiences with that, with your, like you said, your ethnic background? How has that informed uh, what you're interested in and what you're working on? Yeah, you know, this is a subject I talk about a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I've also been on on boards and forums and facilitated conversations on race and ethnicity and mm. even genealogy, uh, um, social justice. I mean, I did my first social justice rally uh, for racial justice with my gospel choir in college mm. at George Mason University. So yeah, um, we were in that magazine. It was really exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's something I've thought about for a long time. My background, um, you know, my mother's side, we're describe us in, I guess, simpler terms is, is very Latin and, and Semitic, so Latin and Arab mostly. Mm-hmm. Um, we, 
uh, it's funny because the term Lat people start using Latino and Latina, mm -hmm. and it's funny because it's just the Spanish word for Latin. Yep. But then they've taken that to mean ties to Latin, Central and South America, right. and the Caribbean, right? So all of a sudden they've exempted other people from being Latin, even though they're at Latin, and they've added indigenous people into that yeah. who are not ethnically Latin. So it's kind of become... So so people's labeling and terminology has, has changed a bit. But mm -hmm. my um, I have Northwestern European in my background. I have a, a line that I was actually doing some ancestry work before I got mm -hmm. on this call, because I'm trying to find more relatives from this back my, my father has a branch of his family that's um european west african and native american who also oh. has a little spanish oh wow so i'm trying to find some of these people um so for me i always I, i'm lucky that i've gotten to play a lot of things that are in my ancestry mm -hmm. uh but it's mostly what we're doing on stage is where we're we're presenting something mm -hmm. you know when people talk about identity Mm -hmm. I keep saying, I'm like, look, what's your identity in, on stage? You're identifying as that character for those two hours that those ticket buyers play that paid to see you, right? Mm -hmm. You How you identify behind the scenes personally is a different story. They're not coming to see you play yourself. Right. Um, that's the point of interest for those of us who want to see someone in our category on stage, mm -hmm. but we can't expect an audience to, and I don't think they care as much. I think when we talk about authenticity, unless you're playing yourself in your own one person show, you're not right. You're playing a character. And so mm. I like, I've always done my homework anyway. And so yeah. I think actors should be doing that. I think you should sure. be taking great care to make a character believable and understandable mm -hmm. uh, without, without putting any negative connotation uh, to a group of people, yeah. right? You're, yeah, and you're only representing you. Mm -hmm. Everyone's different. It doesn't right. matter if I'm saying, you know, a, I could be half Mexican, half Irish, and grew up in the suburbs, and then I was cast in the Heights playing Puerto Rican, right. who grew up in the city. That's a different, my life would be different. I might have the look of the show, the shorthand right. on stage, right? right. But yeah, that's I think, something you have in I think, mind. I think representation is important, and I think we need to see people of all backgrounds when we go to see a show. However... Absolutely. However, where does it stop in some extent? Because, like, I have a friend who's, who's from, you know, she said to me, I'm playing a character. I'm supposed to be from Ghana. She said, but I'm from North Carolina, and my ancestors most likely were slaves and came from Senegal. So I'm not really from Ghana, am I? So it's like, it's like you know, right? You know, just because you're black or just because your skin color is different doesn't right. mean that you... But, like she said, the representation and being on stage is important uh, so yes, and I think having it be not just a bunch of white people on stage is important, and so that people can see yeah. when you're playing characters that are so. So talking about playing characters that are ethnically either ethnic, you know, ethnically different than white that are not Caucasian. Um, one of your big markers in your career was playing um, Juan in Alter Boys off Broadway, right? You originated really the role, um, and uh, it's become a huge international phenomenon. This this small but popular and mighty show, Alter Boys, it's been done everywhere. Um, so tell us about originating the role of Juan in that show. Yeah. So, uh, and that's a great point too. Like when I start, when um, I came aboard to do that show, there was a book writer that came aboard at a similar time, Kevin Delaguila. Mm -hmm. who's um who so but prior to that it was kind of a, a 
a book or not a book or choppy book and some different songs, some of the same songs. And so that character had been, when I came aboard, they were like, we didn't know what to do with this character because I speak Spanish and I, part of my audition was improv in Spanish. Mm-hmm. And so they, so I added the Spanish in the script that was there. Mm-hmm. Kevin Del Aguila's um, half Peruano, half Peruvian, but he doesn't speak Spanish. So right. I, and I've done translation for him. Right. for a couple of other things. That, so happens, thing that is, happens to people, right, exactly. The opposite yeah. happens where, like, oh. my, my boyfriend's Mexican-American and doesn't speak a word of Spanish, or very little Spanish. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> or sometimes you'll audition and they'll be like, can you just say this in Spanish? You're like, well, that's translation. Right. So, and what did the playwright mean for this to be? You want me to, tra- right. where's this person from? Depends on what Spanish you're going to speak. But, nice. so the, the, the part of the role of Juan, of Juan is that he was left on the church steps in Mexico <laughs> Right? He was left um, uh, in Tijuana on the church steps, and so the priests and nuns raised him. Mm-hmm. So he grew up in Mexico, which means, now he doesn't, doesn't mean he's Mexican. He, his family could have crossed the border mm-hmm. from the United States. His family, whoever left him there, could be white, could be black, could be anybody that left this child on the steps, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but what you know is he grew up in Mexico speaking Spanish, so he would have a speak Mexican Spanish and have an accent, but he was obsessed with Menudo. So his obsession <laughs> with singing and dancing came from watching Menudo, which is Puerto Rican. And so he has, he's, um, that's kind of what he, he wants to do as a performer, mm. as opposed to something closer to, to Mexican, right? But the thing is, for me, I chose like, well, this guy grew up in Mexico. He is, I have similar ancestry. I have Spanish and native, but I wasn't born in Mexico, but I'm going to make this, this dude is from here. He was left on the church steps. So this is how he is. He mm-hmm. speaks this language. He sounds this way. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's also, oddly, he was the flirtatious one in the show who was also is a virgin. They're all supposed to be virgins, right? So, right. Um, yeah. so, I took great care in being like, this is, who is Juan himself? Mm-hmm. He's not an idiot. He's not stupid. He's not going to be some, you know, uh, bizarre uh, kind of uh, caricature special. He has, a, he has, I think, the strongest arc in the show. Um, mm. He is looking for his parents. And then you discover mm. before his big number that they're not alive. And what, what was interesting, why this is also interesting, his background is, when we got reviewed and people's perception was, often they gave adjectives to the three obvious white guys in the show, right, in the reviews. And sometimes Juan and Abraham, who's Jewish, would be like the Latin and the Jew. Mm-hmm. The Gefilte Fish Out of Water, which was what our marketing team came up with, and the <laughs> Richie Martin-esque Juan. Mm-hmm. So we were even not given. That to them was the character. I'm like, mm-hmm. no, Juan being Hispanic is not the character. And right. Abe's Jewishness is character that's part of who they are right Abe writes the music he's not a convert mm-hmm. either he writes the music because there's a brotherhood around this guy jesus he feels mm-hmm. one is is um is innocent and he's smart and he's and he's flirtatious and he's funny and he's looking for his parents there's so much more but it it's funny because no matter how, how hard you work sometimes people will see your your box right. you know your category yeah, it's really sad that they they put people in a box and also the characters in a box because as as an actor, what you've just been pointing out are the circumstances, right? You're playing the circumstances of that character's life, what's happened to that character, what their what their needs are, what their wants are, the who's, the why, the what, the things that an actor should be interested in. Whereas sometimes the audience just looks at the exterior, right? And they just look at yeah, the way the, the characters look. Yeah. You're yeah. absolutely right. I'll tell you that when I left the show, I came back to the show to see um, Daniel Torres, who's now going to be the music man. I went to see him mm-hmm. 
go on to take over the role uh, to support him and to see the show from the outside. And I sat behind an older couple that was going through the playbill and I was really excited to hear what the buzz was because we were very popular and we'd all been nominated for stuff. And the couple, the woman is reading the character list. She goes, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Juan, and Abraham. Why Juan? And the husband says, well, you always got to throw a Hispanic in there. <laughs> oh, Jesus. And I was like, oh, wow. Yeah. So what, so what we think on our level that we're doing, it it almost, now this is before the show, but I thought, look, my, my job is to inhabit this character and tell the story and, and be there for the people um, who are like Juan. So they can look at me and go, I'm their guy, but I'm there to serve the entire audience. But for people who are, who might be in Juan's category or background to be like, you're my guy. Right. I, I, maybe I root for you, but I need yeah. to, I can't do less of, you can't do less of your job to appease people. Right. You're, rep- uh, you're representing, but you're really, what you're doing is honoring the character. You're honoring the, the needs of the character, and that's the most important thing. And if the needs of the character have something in there about his background, then you, you explore that background, and I think that's great. Yeah, yeah. but people are going to see, you know, sometimes when you, the minute you do an accent, it gets a laugh. And I think it's really tough now. You have to try to find a way to make that not present first, in oh, a way. That's a great point. Because, but now yeah. people's sensibilities. Now, we've yeah. clowned so many accents. Mm-hmm. They've been clowned, particularly Asian accents, have been clowned so yeah. much that even yeah. actors I know are like, oh, gosh, yeah. this character should have an accent, and I just can't bring myself. Right. You suddenly become, it's, it's a much bigger issue. You know, and as, as, a, as a son who has a mother who has an accent when she speaks English that's pretty thick, but otherwise is blonde and blue-eyed, right? So you see how the accent is another way of, of putting people down or it's another way of categorizing or putting people in a box because my mother is, is Latin, Latina, but if she doesn't open her mouth, she can quote-unquote pass as American, quote-unquote, whatever that means, or white. And so then white people don't bother her, but the minute she starts to talk and she has an accent, the questions start coming, you know, like... Yeah, like we're, we're treated how we're perceived, right? Right, right. So, so the accent play is, is a big way uh, for um, European immigrants in this country to put down Latin and, and other immigrants uh, what they perceive as a different category, and they try to, to put you in the box. So it's unfortunate, and I really hope that we're, we're moving past that, or slowly, we're working on it. It's a work in progress, but I mean, it's really interesting that you have... Uh, I mean, Alter Boys was not yesterday. I mean, this was a while ago. And so you were in there yeah. kind of in the trenches, kind of handling some of these issues but before. But we never had, right. you're right, but we never had that, that issue never came up. It yeah. doesn't usually come up for me, for other right. people, yes. But I didn't, because of my background, or what people don't know about my background, right? So, right. I mean, when I went to a high school reunion, uh, actually, I went to my 10-year reunion, um, a while ago when I was doing an off-Broadway show called um, The Yellow Brick Road, which was the uh, bilingual Latino Wizard of Oz. Mm. And so I noticed at my um, reunion, different friends were realized they didn't really know what I was. My friends were like, weren't you part Filipino? And I was like, no, did you, you thought I was, or aren't you from here? Or is, <laughs> but your name is I. I'm like, no, the name is Scottish. Duncan. So it was hilarious that I was like, yeah, I guess we were all very mixed. I love my high school group of friends, but no one thought about, we just didn't know all the time what each right. other was. Um, but, but yeah, the conversation is now, it's very heated. And look, it's a pendulum. 
it's going to keep swinging right. and it's going to go out of bounds and come back in. And, sure, sure. Well, um, there have to be some adjustments made. And I was talking to someone that there was like, you know, someone said, oh, you're going too far in one direction. And then that person said, well, but for the last 300 years, we've gone the other direction. So we can afford to go this direction a little bit. It's <laughs> not a swing in that direction, right? <laughs> we figure it out. Yes. Yeah, there's, there's like... Um, it's interesting because the sensibility of most shows is a lot of us, including myself, have sometimes we're the um, quote unquote ethnic hire or hire of color. And sometimes we're uh, not now enough and right. we blend too much white folks. Like, and again, it's how I'm perceived in life. Right. If I'm in a place I'm not familiar with, I have to first perceive, see how they perceive me ethnically. Am I white to these people or am I not? Mm. And then, other, then you layer in that's, the other. That's fascinating. <laughs> I mean, I. Group to be a problem. That's fascinating, Ryan, because also you have a name, Ryan Duncan, that if you, yes. if you see it on a piece of paper, nobody, no, right, nobody expects necessarily you. They expect, you know, some, some blonde, you know, all-American, quote-unquote, jock-looking guy, right? Yeah, White guy, really, British yeah. Well, right. in the D.C. area, that would happen where a few times I, I got this headshot that I, was, I thought was so cool and so proud of because it didn't look like me. <laughs> it looked much hotter than I. So I was like, and the light was really flushed out and yeah. it was in black and white and it, I looked very white in this picture. Mm. And three, at least three times I showed up to an audition where they were like, oh, mm. oh, um, mm. we're going to have you read for for Julio or yeah, for the right. Greek character or for something because you don't look. And I didn't think about that yeah, as much. Time. I just thought, mm. oh yeah, my, <laughs> yeah. I'm how I present in a picture could be different than especially when it was in black and white. And we loved that flushed out look. All of we all looked great. Well, we all looked wonderful. Well, you know, I share that with you because I have a European a German sounding first and last name and people assume I'm German and speak German and I don't. And then I have to constantly come out as my Latino side from my mom. And I constantly have to do it like every day because people just assume I'm German American or white guy from Pennsylvania or whatever, which is not at all what I am. But anyway, so we share that. But, you know, listening to you talk, Ryan, about all the things we've talked about so far, I'm really um, aware of your keen sense of sort of uh, depth. You know, a lot of performers play what's on the page and they do a lot of, you know, the work and it's hard work to be on stage. But you, there's something more there as I'm talking to you. And I think it has to do with your writing and your writing skills. You seem to wear, and you've talked already a couple of times about how your writing has informed different pieces that you've worked on Broadway and off Broadway. Um, you know, you seem to wear at least those two hats and many more, but not just actor, but you're also a writer. How do you see these two things working together? You've already mentioned some of them. And is there one that you think of yourself more? I mean, are you, do you, do you like them both together? Do you think of, of yourself really, if you had your druthers, you would just want to write? Do you want to write new musicals? Do you want to write new pieces? Do you? I mean, how do you see yourself in that whole uh, context of the different things that you do in those two areas? Wow. Not really. I no. don't. <laughs> the thing is, uh, I'm much more of an actor yeah. first. Um, okay. I, but my whole life I liked creating. So I realized when I started, I thought I started writing more recently than I did. I've, oh, I've written stuff since I was in the DC area. Mm -hmm. I've written for a sketch group I was with. I've written comedy projects. Um, I wrote a musical we can talk about called The Gander Family Christmas. The, what yeah. I try to do in my writing, I've written for some short um, plays that have been produced I wrote as a, one of the writers of, of a, a full-length play that was for pages for Puerto Rico. So um, it was Storm Relief um, called, uh, what was it called? Aftermath. So in my writing, I'm very aware because of, of who I am and who the people are around me that I care about and my community. Uh, 
meaning of community of artists that a lot of us are asked to play one or two things and those are the skills we develop right we're only asked we're asked to play a stereotype or a version of ourselves and the world has been or, or even the art world the world of art is often dictated by money mm-hmm. in many ways and so there are a lot of opportunities people haven't gotten there are mm-hmm. a lot of things that where, where talented people were never gotten couldn't get in the door or were the only one right they were like yeah we were token tokenized and so in my writing i try to write for really talented funny friends of mine of various backgrounds and and flip stereotypes on their head like okay are you used to playing this a lot i see that you're playing what if you played this character that was completely unlike can you find that like that's what i try to challenge in my writing is like can i push against um can i give you a character people are going to love audiences are going to love so they don't see it as politicization they don't Mm -hmm. see it as badge wearing they don't see it as stereotype they see this person that can and to be like create what you want to do Uh, let's create something in this role. I'm going to write, I think, I always say I'm writing a skeleton, I, I overwrite. Mm-hmm. But for an actor to be able to say, look, I, I'm used to doing this one thing. Mm-hmm. My friend Jaylene Marcos and I talk about this all the time. Jaylene Marcos has her own one-woman show. She's been in nine Broadway shows. Mm-hmm. She has a show called How, um, What I Did for a Job about all the things she used to use that was expected of her in auditions and then she would flip it mm-hmm. on its head. Mm-hmm. So they didn't expect that from an Asian actress, right? right? right. She, or they did, and you know, and so she has to. She's challenging herself to think about like, well, what did I? And we've all asked ourselves that. So what do I want to bring to this character? I know what will go over well in the room, um, but do I want to give that? So I think when I write, I try to write something atypical and a little twisted and off. Mm. But okay, well, but speak, to celebrate the character. Speaking about twisted and off, let's talk a bit about what you mentioned. I wanted to talk about it. Uh, a Gander Family Christmas, a twistedly funny holiday musical that you wrote. Tell us more about this show and how did you come up with the concept? And are the rights available? Can people um, do it anywhere? Um, tell us more. <laughs> well, I wish. So um, my good friend Tad Wilson and I can co-conceive this show. We went to see... We went to see Clay Aiken and Ruben Studdard's Christmas show a few years ago. Yes, I and, heard about that. <laughs> uh, we saw a rough night, and I had a good friend in it as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was, it was. Um, I, I just felt like we were. We had a lot of discussions. The show started out really well, and then it kind of went into a weird place. And my and I was like, I could write this on purpose. <laughs> I could do the version of this. Um, kind of an awkward, but really funny Christmas show, and so I. I did, and my friend Jeff Loden composed the music, and I have my friend Wendy Seib is a choreographer, and a director, choreographer. Um, and so I wrote it with several, with myself and four other friends in mind. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're basically uh, the Gander family. It's funny because people have asked me, does this have to do with Come From Away? And I, f- I was, forgot about it. I was going to ask, it, I was gonna ask about the Gander connection. What is the, the Gander no, connection? No, I just thought, um, because my friend, I think Tad thought it was funny to think like, we, the five of us grew up in, the, our characters grew up in foster care in upstate New York with, with a uh, couple, na- their last name was Gander. Ah. And so people would go say, take a Gander to, to adopt one of us, but no one did. And so they ended up leaving us their house. Um, we, their, their landscaper one day said, hey, you guys got talent. You should start a group. So we did, just for no <laughs> other reason. And so what we lack in professionalism, we make up for in talent and forced joy. So... Um, it's a short one-hour show. It's just really awkward. We've done a read, a couple readings of it. 
the last two years we've been trying to like see if we could film it like kind of like a netflix kind of special or we get it up on stage off broadway i had a friend work out a budget for that but we need to raise money and then the pandemic just kind of kept throwing wrenches uh, into it we're hoping to do a reading up here in february and we would like it to be something that can be licensed out it's five people and a a Mm -hmm. technically there's a piano player who's a part of it Mm -hmm. and um it's for families it's twisted and weird Mm -hmm. um we have a character that you know because we wrote the show it has really um really honest look at who santa claus was and the story of christ's birth and things that you would think are inappropriate to put in a show but we don't know we think it's interesting (laughs) (laughs) well i mean i think it's neat that you know there are there is a trend there are some shows uh prior to the pandemic that were sort of being developed not necessarily for broadway but or off broadway even but they're developed to be uh licensed out and to be done throughout the country like freaky friday disney's freaky friday um that that they really never planned a broadway production right it was always like this is going to be done wherever people want to do it here it is so you could certainly go down that road it sounds fascinating so um i definitely want to know more yes that's kind of a great way to look at it so let's talk a bit about you mentioned earlier that you you know were in dc and you come from uh you know were raised in in woodbridge in virginia outside of dc in the suburbs of washington our nation's capital let's talk a bit about your experience there so a lot of your regional experience you have other regional experience but a lot of it was in dc at fords at signature studio these are major theaters in everyone knows about fords uh major theaters in in the dc area um, what did you learn from DC theater and how was it different from New York? I mean, I know some of the differences, but what has your experience been in terms of DC versus, um, New York? Wow. Yeah. So uh, I was asked when I was doing altar boys, I was interviewed by someone in the DC area asking what, the, you know, seeing that the show was so strenuous, where did you get your training and backgrounds? Uh, what do you think prepared you to do this kind of show? And I said, doing theater in the D.C. area, particularly dinner theater. Mm. So I started, um, I was doing a lot, I was I was getting a degree in foreign language from GMU, singing in the choirs there, doing industrials, and I got involved in dinner theater mm. uh, in, in the area, which was really strenuous and, and exhausting, but also fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you learn a lot about theater. So you're waiting tables and, and doing dinner theater. And then I broke into kind of the DC theater scene, but I broke into that right before I moved. So I did mm-hmm. hair at studio theater mm-hmm. after doing something at the source. Remember the source theater? Yeah, I do. Source yeah, theater. The I theater did. itself, the theater itself is still there on 14th street, but it's used by a constellation theater. And oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I also did, I wrote a short, play that got a reading by Cherry Red Productions there. I remember while I was working at Ford. So after I moved to New York in 97, I did go back to the DC area to do Sideshow at Signature in their old space, the original um, mechanics garage space. Yeah. Um, I did, uh, and then I did three three things at Ford's. I did A Christmas Carol, which Mm -hmm. I loved, um, which was magical. I, I covered my friend Steve Boyer in I'm not Rappaport, mm. the pre-Broadway Fords, yeah. and then I did 1776 there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, what else did I do? There? I came close there a couple other times. Like I, I was close to doing Freaky Friday, actually mm-hmm. down there, and I was already engaged in something else. But the DC area, it, it was a, a, obviously a smaller. Mm-hmm. Um, at least when I left, it, there weren't as many equity theaters. Yeah. Um, I was offered my card in the DC area and turned it down because I made so much money doing dinner theater and I didn't know the DC theater scene yet Mm -hmm. um moved to New York and 
um, joined the union like in a, a couple years later. But uh, I thought it was DC was there's a lot of creativity going on. There's like mm-hmm. Woolly Mammoth and Peter Jay and mm-hmm. all these theaters, uh, studio and Second Stage that were doing these really fun outside the box productions. You could you had um, you had touring shows that came through, mm-hmm. but there were short runs. They they were I don't remember. If we we did eight shows a week in the theater, I guess we did eight shows a week. I don't remember. Mm-hmm. We did eight shows a week in some of the theaters, but um, it really got. I mean, you get your feet wet in the theater community, but you all you know each other and you know what's going on, and mm-hmm. we all checked. Um, what was it in the, the Sunday Arts? I guess we would check mm-hmm. to see where the auditions were and who was mm-hmm. casting one. It's, it's a nice it's a nice community, and then you know what's happened over time. Uh, from what you're talking about back in the late 1990s to you know, early 2000s to now, in the last 20 years, believe it or not, uh, is really that now it used to be when you and I were in the trenches in the late 90s and early 2000s in D.C. that you really couldn't earn a living doing just theater if you were equity, right? That's what you're saying because there weren't enough equity. Houses. That's changed. And now 20 years later, there is plenty of equity work to be had around town. Um, with all the different theaters with different contracts and um, but it is still you know you have to be good enough right and you have to be able to get your um, you know get yourself in the door and and stay in the door um, but even up until very recently one of the biggest actresses in DC Nancy Robinette was like a legal secretary like she had a day job because you, you couldn't you just there weren't really enough uh, uh, roles and things, but it really has expanded since. But when you were there in the '90s to 2000s, were here, um, it was very competitive and it was hard to get into shows. There weren't that many theaters producing. It really was. Yeah. No, that's a good point. It reminded me of indie theater here in New York, off mm. off Broadway, where you could be an, a phenom off off Broadway, working all the time, and you had to have another job because it's just not paying. You know, it's enough difficult. To, to live off. But so all that experience, what it did with the dinner theaters, and there used to be a lot of them in this area too, and now I think we're down to one, maybe two. Um, the um, what um, what that does, right? Like you said, is the work ethic, the the energy, the the learning. You know, you cut your teeth by learning all these different things, and you have to go from one thing to another. You really don't have a lot of time, even really, to take catch your breath. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um- it, it's, it really is a juggling act. And when you move to New York too, right, you have to, they call it your survival job. And, and a lot of jobs tend to, one, they value actors because they feel like we have skills that they can use even in the corporate world. Yeah. But also that you, know, you need something flexible so that you can, mm-hmm. I remember when I moved to waiting tables with a, fr- a friend, um, Deanna Harris, who's from the DC area, mm. uh, that we had to juggle like, well, how many auditions can we do this week? Well, now we need money to pay rent. So we got we to take on more shifts. Right, got to do more work. Well, the hustle, right, and the being able to to spin many plates, and obviously, and from looking at your background and looking at um, your resume and everything you've done, that's precisely what you've kept doing. You're spinning a ton of plates, which leads me to talk a bit about um, what you do, um, theater related jobs that you do that may not be performing. Um, you work for Only Make Believe, a nonprofit that provides theatrical experience to kids in hospitals, and you've also translated some shows into Spanish there. And uh, another place called Mersion, one of the fastest growing American companies, fostering social skills, diversity, equity, inclusion, and empathy through online visual real- virtual reality. Okay, explain those both. They both sound fascinating. So you do this as well as all the other things you do? Yes, so uh, Only Make Believe, I... I started six I started working for them six years ago they have a their the main office was New York but they have the DC, a DC branch oh, wow. um, the DC branch has been more active during the pandemic I think mm. but we during the pandemic we transitioned to 
virtual to online um, short films and interactive things through Zoom. But so what we do is we we go into dozens of hospital sites in the New York and DC area. Uh, we do interactive theater with kids. We do three actors at a time. We have a team leader and, and uh, the three of you do, you know, we bring a trunk and a suitcase with props and costumes and music. And we um, have a lot of activities. We have, I think, gosh, we had, when I started, there were 12 one hour shows we had to memorize. It ends up being like, now there's 20 in my head because some of them have, have updated. Wow. We do three in Spanish. So, um, and you can um, fit those shows for the population. So if we have uh, populations of kids who are less mobile or ambulatory, less um, uh, hearing, um, seeing uh, uh, different issues there, we can we can kind of um, alter the shows mm. so that it's more sensory and less verbal. So that there's there are, um, other things that they can do if they can't move around we move them around we come to them so it really is about letting kids forget for a moment that they're in a hospital mm. or a special uh a special space special institution mm. we want them to, to leave that behind have a time to with us go on go on a journey use their imagination um and maybe learn something but really it's to to provide some kind of interaction some kind of escape mm. for them and um it was hard because the pandemic shut that all down and mm. we had yeah. to do it online mm. well, what, a, what a wonderful what a wonderful way to use theater right to heal and to help children um oh, who gosh. are sick i mean that's got to feel like it's the Definitely. right use right <laughs> the things we take for granted that we can do on a stage for my um mm. are, will heal we've heard i've had kids um kids who come in in pain and they within a few minutes of interacting they the, it seems that they they're not reacting to the pain anymore we've had mm. kids speak that don't usually speak or their caregivers will say we don't hear them speak very much they only speak when you guys come mm. or they sing along to your song um mm. the things we 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 take for granted are are healing they're able to heal mm. and reach um vulnerable populations mm. and and we're a very diverse group of people um reaching people who who don't um who don't always have visibility or voices. Mm. And so I find that really, it's been, a, it's almost like a ministry. I mm. really love the job and, and um, I, I don't know how much I'll be able to commit in the new year, but um, they're holding it down. We're, we're trying to get back into those, those, I think they're doing, the DC group is doing stuff at Olney. Oh, wow. I Olney think they do more. Yeah, with all they found a way to do it outdoors at only. Oh, yeah, there's a, there's a stage they just built out there. So, you know, I mean, this is a wonderful, like I said, a wonderful way to use your theatrical skills and also to give back, and that's so great. So thank you for doing that. But um, let's talk about Mersion. Um, what's that about, and what is it that you're you're doing with that group? It's so wild. It's So I have friends that worked for them, mm -hmm. and my friend Amy Garcia was like, it's like you're helping people one person at a time have difficult conversations and training them in soft skills. And, and I got hired last year. So I had my year anniversary, December 1st. Mm, um, today was the day I, thank you. I might've started training. Oh, so wow. we, we um, inhabit avatars that are specifically written and created by clients because they're either their educational institution, their, their employees, what have you need to learn certain skills to interact with patients, to interact with students, to interact mm. with others. And so they, we have um, specially written uh, kind of scenarios that we, uh, and we inhabit avatars. So mm. it it's kind of like, 
it looks, it kind of feels like playing a video game of sorts, but you inhabit these avatars that teach these, these skills. And so the person, and it's in a risk-free environment. So the learner can come on and, for example, uh, teach a class for the first time, not having seen a class of students. And they have five student avatars of either early education, middle school, elementary school, high school. This is just one example. And they interact with the students and they have some embedded events things that they have to or should um, be able to to work on during the, the session. And then they reflect on that session at the end. Um, and a lot of people are finding it very valuable that, that, you know, some of our clients are like, we never get to have these conversations. They're difficult to have. I've never been in front of a class before. I didn't know how to deliver difficult medical um, news to someone. And, and it helps people practice. Basically, it's practice. And so that too, we're playing not a, it's not entertainment. We're not playing a character. Right. We're just inhabiting an avatar with strict parameters so that it's healthy for everyone involved. Oh. Well, you're using um, you're using theater in another yet another way. Your theater skills and your performing yeah. skills and your, your your creative skills in yet another way to help people. That's really fascinating. So we're almost out of time. This has gone by so fast. I forgot to even look at my my clock, and I'm like, oh my gosh. But I do. Before we go, I want to talk to you about shows that I know you're working on. Um, in development, uh, um, there's a show. Um, talk to us a bit about Distant Thunder. Yeah, so there are a couple things I'm, I'm very proud about because um, <clears throat> we're at a time where, like you said, we need more representation and visibility, and we mm-hmm. and we need to expand the scope of of um, what we see on stage. And my good friend Sean Taylor Corbett and his mother Lynn Taylor Corbett mm. um, of of Swing and Titanic. She choreographed chess as well, uh, fame. They wrote a show um, based on Sean's um, father's background, the the Blackfoot Reservation uh, in Montana. Mm-hmm. And it's, a, it's one of the first contemporary Native American musicals. And we've been working on that for about 10 years. And we were set to premiere <laughs> the oh. lyric of Oklahoma. And we had done two and a half weeks of rehearsal. And they shut us down, of course. Yeah. So tomorrow we start a work session to kind of get us back on our feet, get it back into our brains, and we will um, head back out there in March to do now. Um, so the cast uh, has various Native and uh, Indigenous ancestries mm-hmm. in our in our cast. Um, it's it is musical theater meets um, uh, actual kind of Native storytelling, mm-hmm. somewhat. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's not it's not a flashy musical, but it's a, it's a, it's a musical with a lot of heart. And so they have now the lyric because they're worried about COVID still, uh, we have, um, paired up with the first Americans museum, the, the huge native American museum that just uh, opened there supported by 39 tribes, mm-hmm. uh, that we will, they will host us for a week of performances outside at Ooh. one of their venues. Oh, that's so it'll be a very profile event. Oh, wow. Well, you know, I have, believe it or not, a couple of friends of mine who are theater people who also have native um, heritage. And um, they've tried in different ways to sort of get that, you know, represented. Um, but I, they're going to die to know about this, about Distant Thunder. So if they're listening in, I'm sure they're, and I'll, I'll make sure that. Like, yeah, I will send them the information. They're brilliant and they're hardworking people. So they do other things. You know, one of them teaches high school 
uh, theater in in Norfolk, Virginia, but she is um, has always been interested in Native Americans and Native Americans in theater because it's part of her background. And we did a a play in grad school called the Res Sisters, the Reservation Sisters. There was a huge play in Canada uh, for the Native community there that won the Dora Maeve Award and all that stuff. But um, anyway, I'll definitely c- connect with her because um, that sounds fast. Can you tell us a little bit about Distant Thunder? What uh, so it, or can you not tell us yet? Is it too soon? No, I can, anything yeah, I can tell you some some about it. It's it's like a native son comes home, right? So, mm. um, uh, Sean, the, the lead character there is um, his name is Daryl, and his mother, his father's from um, Browning, Montana, is okay. uh, big on or Blackfoot, and uh, the the mother who is white passes away, and she was actually helping the tribe as a lawyer and he heads back home and now he's a big kind of corporate guy and he heads back home mm-hmm. and it's it's not an unheard of story right someone mm-hmm. goes home and who has long lost connection with their ancestry and their and he grew up on this res and then moved away and so it's the character is going back and there's uh, uh, an old friend that lives there who's, who's starting who has started an immersion a language immersion school for Pikani and um it's it shows a contemporary look kind of like, you know, that we, it's great. We have reservation dogs on, on TV now and mm-hmm. all these contemporary native plays because, you know, native people were not seen in a contemporary light. It was always kind of historical. And this is like a contemporary look at what, how he can help, mm-hmm. how he can find who he is, mm-hmm. um, all of who he is and help um, figure out a way to, to keep the culture alive and to not just kind of, because so much has been destroyed by colonialism, right? And, mm-hmm. and lack of sovereignty. And so uh, I would say it's contemporary musical theater, but there are also, um, with permission, uh, actual like native songs. So it's oh, wow. it's um, yeah. prayer songs. It's not it's musical theater, but there's also uh, there's a lot of authenticity to the, to mm. what what was going on in the show. We have native elders who are in the show who are wow. uh, warming because everyone's got a different background, right? And it's a lived experience. It's not just what's in your DNA. Right. It's um. It's very much a lived experience going through uh, kind of this, this, you know, what white supremacy and colonialism has done. Sure. And so yeah. there's, wow. yeah. there's a lot of responsibility mm-hmm. on the shoulders uh, of the show in some ways, but it, it really is a look into this this guy and his particular family unit wow. and this trunk. Well, this sounds like a fascinating project, uh, Ryan, and you definitely have to keep us all uh, posted on that. So we're out of time, but before you go, I do want you to have um, tell us, you know, if people want to find out more about Distant Thunder or any of the other projects that you are working on, how can they stay in touch with you? Uh, is there a website or social media that they can follow, or how, what, what kind of social media do you use? Where can they go to find out what Ryan, what you're working on, and what's coming up? Yeah, well, I'm on Twitter. My Twitter is very, um, it's very political. So okay. Ryan C. Duncan on Twitter, but so it's not going to have a lot of show stuff. It does have some things. But my Instagram, I usually share, uh, uh, which is Runyon Cal, R-U-N-Y-O-N-C-A-L. Okay. Or if you look up Ryan Duncan, you should be able to find me. Yeah. Um, on my Instagram, I share a lot of show stuff. Uh, Distant Thunder, if you go to the Lyric Theater of Oklahoma, mm-hmm. their website, yeah. they have us listed, the show listed. And um, we have other theaters interested in doing regional productions of the show. There's already been licensing interest, but we want to get our production up finally after all this time. Sure, and course. so, um, 
Yeah. Well, yeah. It sounds wonderful, Ryan, and you are so busy and there's so many different things that you're working on. I'm so glad we got a chance to talk here on American Theatre Artists Online and thank you for joining us and sharing of your very diverse and interesting uh, work that you're doing throughout uh, the country. So thank you. Thank you, Simon. I was, I was happy to do it. Have a good one. Good to talk. Good to talk. You to too. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the American Theatre Artists Online podcast. This episode was edited by Zach Walsh. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider donating to the Actors Fund today. Just go to actorsfund.org and press donate. If you'd like to share your feedback or send us comments, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at American Theatre Artists Online.